Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and then 15 through 23. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. It's good to see you uh, this morning. We, uh, if you're wondering what happened to Romans, we are going to go away for a few weeks from our study of the book of Romans. It's not because, as I told you last week, moving from chapter 8 to chapter 9 is a scary proposition. We're going to get there, I promise. Uh, but I felt like uh, about Wednesday or Thursday of this week, my, my wife was gone all week, and, that, and, and she had made arrangements. Most of the kids were taken care of, so I had a lot more just time to myself, which for a person like me can be a scary thing. I tend to come up with really lots of ideas, some of them good, some of them not so good. And we'll see whether this is uh, one or the other. I'm not sure yet. But about Thursday of this week, I really felt like the Lord uh, was, was saying, I, you know, there's some things that I want you to... To address, uh, we want to do a little spring cleaning, so to speak, as it's now uh, coming to the end of the year and we're heading into summer. And really, really for two reasons. The one is because, so I want to do some cultural architecture is the way I would put it. I want to really talk to us as a church about where I feel like we are right now at this moment and and help us uh, to get ready for what I think God is about to do. Because our leaders uh, believe that we are on the verge of a really uh, sweet season for our church. Uh, that we really do, we really kind of in, in consensus believe that. 
and that the next few years are going to provide a tremendous opportunity for us. And you see it in very small ways. In some ways, I was really nervous uh, about, about doing this. Uh, this is, uh, I have to be really vulnerable, which is really scary, more so than usual. Uh, but as soon as I walked into the room this morning, I knew, okay, this is exactly what we're supposed to do. And part of it is, I don't even know if you realize, you guys have been singing louder the last few weeks than typical. I mean, there's just some things like that happening, right? There's just, there's just, we just have a sense of, okay, God is, God is working. He's doing something in our midst. And you can see it in very, very little ways, just in, in a feel and in the spirit that you get when you walk into the room. Uh, we've made a couple of hires that we can't wait to tell you about. We'll be kind of talking about those in the coming weeks in the last month uh, that we're really excited about, that we think are going to bring a lot of good stuff to our church. Uh, we started officer training this past week with 10 men, uh, and so God's raising up leaders in our midst. We're sending people out from our church, which is, I mean, really ama- an amazing thing, right? We're sending missionaries. And by the way, uh, I hope that that won't be the last kids of, of people in this church that grow up so enamored with the gospel that they go to the mission field, right? You with me? That should be a regular occurrence. Pray with me that that would be a regular occurrence around here. Uh, we're trying to plant a Spanish-speaking church in our city, which would be a dream come true. There's a lot of really, really amazing, fun, exciting, spirit-led things happening in our church. But at the same time, uh, you know, I sense the enemy at work, too, in little things. Of course, we should expect this, right? The, the, the terror threat level of hell is at red. So, so you see it in, in little things, really. But uh, I've learned one of the lessons of the last few years for me is that little things can quickly become big things. And so if we believe the Spirit is moving among us, that the wind of the Spirit blows here and there wherever it wishes and we can't control it, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, we can't predict it, we can't manage it, but we can miss it. And so we don't want to miss it. We want to set our sails to catch the wind as it blows. And so there are three or four things, a few things that I think are important, uh, that I think we need to be alerted to, that we need to be diligent in, so that we are ready uh, to catch the wind of the Spirit as it blows, if you will. Uh, at the beginning of the year, well, anyway, so those are, for the next three or four weeks, those are, I'd just like to take one of those things like one by one, and you'll see them as they come. I'm not going to spoil the fun and, and tell you exactly what I think, because it might change. Um, but... At the beginning of the year, uh, I just began to uh, hear the Lord. Um, this doesn't sound very Presbyterian, and I'm sorry, but um, I just, I just, as we were as we were praying as a staff, and as I was praying as I do typically at the beginning of the year for the church, I just, I just kept hearing the word "new," uh, new from Him, new. And 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 being ten years, you know, we turned ten this year. Are you aware of that? And October will be our ten year anniversary. We've been here for ten years. And so in a lot of ways, uh, some the people that started out with us are still very much in leadership, and a lot of we're, we're seeing a lot of people say, you know, it's been 10 years, we're kind of tired, and there's transition taking place. And so I just heard the Lord say, you know, new, I think there's going to be a new thing. There's going to be new uh, leaders. There's going to be, and at the time I wondered if it meant me too. Does this part need to be new too, to be honest? Uh, and so as we brace for what I think the Lord is doing as far as new, new people, new ministries, new leadership, new, those kinds of things. New, of course, means change, right? And by the way, the clinical definition of death, anybody know what it is? The absence of change. And so if you're not changing, you're dying. 
But of course, change means uh, conflict, typically. typically. And if you don't know me, I hate conflict. And so part of what I'm trying to do is get ahead of, of it a little bit and to say, let's just be alerted, let's be aware of some things that we, that we need to get ourselves ready so we can, so we can be ready for what God uh, is doing in our midst. And one of the things that I wanted to point us to is really uh, this passage from Paul, which I've come back to over and over again. I really, we just read through it, if you've been doing some community Bible reading with us, and I just get stuck in it every time I, I come across it, every year as we read it. And particularly in verse 19, if you'd look there again, uh, where Paul says, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And I, I just... Uh, I just can't get over that phrase. It really is one of these things uh, where if you do prayer cards or if you put scripture, you really ought to take those words and just pray them into your heart. Because it's such, just such a radical thing. Uh, but Paul says, I, I'm free from all. Nevertheless, I make myself a slave so that I can win some. And, and I really want to talk about that this morning. That that really is what we need to ask the Lord to do in us first is to give us this kind of this heart that Paul has here that we see in this chapter, I'm going to call it a missionary heart. And I want to call it a missionary heart because of the fact that we're sending Wade and, and Allie off this, this Sunday. And they're going to be missionaries in Prague. They've raised a bunch of money, you know. They're uprooting their young family to live in a new strange city. And they're going to have to go learn a new language and navigate uh, new cultural dynamics that are unfamiliar to them. Can you imagine if they were to get off the plane on Tuesday or probably Wednesday morning when they get there? And, you know, they say, okay, well, we made it, we're here, so what are you guys going to do for us? It seems a little bit incongruent, doesn't it? No, they're going there to serve. They've done all this crazy stuff they've done for an even crazier reason. They're raising money, they're taking this risk, they're doing all these kinds of things for the opportunity of laying their lives down for the people that they're going to minister to. Think about that, isn't that just nuts? Who does that? Only people who have the spirit of Jesus. And what I want to say is um, that, that as, as you think about how incongruent being a missionary without a missionary heart might be, one of the ways that we've got to think about just our role in wherever God puts us is that we need a similar kind of heart that we see from Paul. It really is the way you should approach marriage. Uh, teenagers is the way you should approach school. And, of course, it's the way you should approach church, too. Churches full of people with hearts like these, you know, like this heart, are churches that really are an unstoppable force in the world. And so it's what we want to ask God. We want to pray uh, that reality that Paul's um, confronting us with here into our hearts and into our church, okay? And so a missionary heart, uh, we want to talk about that. Well, what is it? What do you have to overcome to get it? And where do you get the power? Where, where does the power come from to really change you in the way that you need to be changed to, to live with it? That's really what I want to talk about. So the practice, the problem, and the power to do uh, what Paul says uh, he is doing here in this text. So let's just walk through it together, okay? And, you know, I wish I would have printed it because this happened so late in the week. I wish I would have printed um, Philippians chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, which would be a good idea for you to have that. If so, you might want to get your finger in Philippians 2 because we're really going to uh, find a lot of, of stuff we want to talk about from there as well. But we're going to mainly be here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And so what does this statement mean? This, this, let's look at it again. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I just hope you see how radical what Paul's saying here is. Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant of all. That word's really slave. I've, I've enslaved myself to all that I might win some of them. 
Here's what this text is dealing with. Paul has certain rights as an apostle, okay? That, that's what the whole first part of the text, verses 1 through 7, that Susan read is about. Because of his work as an apostle, the church was obligated to him to provide financially for him and, and so forth. So Paul had authority. He had influence. But what we're told, what he's telling us here is that he didn't use these things to get his way in the church. So verse 15, for example, he said, I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing to secure such provision. In other words, he's saying, look, I want you to understand the way I've been living among you, but I don't want you to think I'm telling you this because I want it to change in any way. No, I'm happy with the way that it is. I know there, there are obligations that you have towards me because of this work that I've been doing, uh, and you've not, and he's basically saying, and you've not done the things you're supposed to do towards me, but I want you to know it's okay. Because that, that's not what this is about anyway. Paul could have used his apostolic authority to get his way, but instead he chose to live with a sacrificial and strategic love towards these Corinthian Christians. He said, I've made myself a servant of all. Verse 19, he said, I could do whatever I want to do. That's my right as an apostle. You, I could say whatever I want to say, and it's your job to, I have authority from the Lord, and so it's your job to, to do whatever I say. He says, but I don't live that way. I don't, I don't do what I want to do. I do what you need me to do. Hear that. I, I don't do what I want to do. I do what you need me to do. I'm not going to insist on getting my way. I'm going to put my desires and opinions aside because this isn't about me. It's about you and what you need. I'm not here for me, Paul says. I'm here for you. That's what the statement means, and it really is remarkable. Uh, elsewhere in Philippians 2, as I said, if you want to turn there, in verses 3 through 4, here's the way Paul puts it there. He says, do nothing... These are his instructions to the Philippian church. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, that's what you see in Paul. He's displaying that here in 1 Corinthians 9, the mind of Christ. It's exactly what Jesus did. I mean, that's what Paul goes on to say there in Philippians 2. He says, though he was God, he didn't demand to be treated as God, but he made himself nothing and became a servant. That Jesus, the very, the very giver of breath, did not come to be served. The one whom angel armies attended in heaven forever and ever and ever did not come to be served as he ought to, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Paul says, Paul's just following his example. And we should follow Paul. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, wrote a sermon entitled the Imitate, Imitating the Incarnation. And I, I, can't, I can't tell you enough. Uh, if you get an hour at some point, you, ought to, you can find the PDF on, online, Imitating the Incarnation. Uh, it really is life-changing stuff. Uh, he, and and, and given, given that he cared for the last 37 years uh, of his marriage, uh, he cared for his wife, who was an invalid. Uh, it was said he was never away from her for more than an hour at a time. But he wanted to be the one to care for her. Now, when you think about that, think about that, read that sermon, and here's what he said. I, I should have printed this, but again, it happened so late in the week. Sometimes we can't help these things. But uh, it's a rather long passage from, from that transcript, but here it is. He says, are we to surrender our clear and recognized rights? Did Christ stand upon his unquestioned right of divinity? There is no length to which Christ's self-sacrifice did not lead him. These words are dull and inexpressive, he says. We cannot enter into thoughts so high. He who was in the form of God took such thought for us that he made no account for himself. Let us remember 
that we are no longer our own, but Christ's, bought with the price of his precious blood, and are henceforth to live not for ourselves, but for him, for him and his creatures, serving him and serving them. So let all thought of our dignity, our possessions, our rights perish out of sight. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives binding ourselves to a thousand souls by such a love that their lives become ours. It means that all the experience of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. Now I come back to those words, <laughs> to be honest, really almost weekly. And what Warfield is describing is a de-selfing that comes from the habit of cherishing others. Do you know what I mean by that? Cherishing others, filling your heart and mind with the experience of others. He says, you know, um, that they're having, having people's worries and cares and needs and desires and experiences so on your heart uh, that you don't just live one life, but you get dragged into, you get sucked into the lives of other people de-selfing that comes from the habit of cherishing. And listen, I'll tell you, that's, that's the key to a good marriage. It's the key to good friendships. It's an absolute necessity in the church. And the text goes on in 1 Corinthians to show us practically what this looks like for Paul. Paul says, this is where I'm coming from towards you guys. This is Paul's heart for these Corinthians. And then he goes on in verses 20 through 22 to show us what it causes him to do, the way it causes him to live among these people. He says... Uh, look there with me. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew, as a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. He goes on, to the weak, I became weak. I have become all things to all people that I, by all means, might save some. Now, notice the word. What's the word that, that keeps coming up over and over again? And remember, when you're reading the Bible and, there, and you find words being said over and over again, it's a clue that that's really what, that's the theme, that's what the text is talking about. And if you look at that text carefully, you'll see that the word that keeps coming up is the word become. And that word become in, in the original language is really the word for change. Paul says, because of my love for these people, I'm, I'm always having to change. He would adopt different ministry forms for different groups of people. So he would do things differently when he was among the Jews than he would when he was among people who weren't Jews. He had to constantly change his, his, his strategies because his philosophy of ministry was this idea that, that wherever I go, I need to do everything I can uh, to build bridges of, of you know, of, uh, of commonality with the people, which is why when Wade and Allie go to Prague, they're going to learn the language. They're going to learn, you know, to the to Czechs, I become like a Czech. So he constantly would change the way he did things, which meant, which meant, by the way, he hardly ever got to do things his way. He didn't even have a way. Do you see? See how radical this is? He didn't even have a way. 
but it didn't seem to bother him, did it? Now, it means a couple of things, I think, for us as we try to apply this text before we move on. The one thing is that I think what you learn here is that there are very few non-negotiables, especially when it comes to gospel ministry, that substance and form are separate categories. And so, for example, singing in a worship service is a non-negotiable, right? We're commanded to do that in the Bible. But what kinds of songs are we supposed to sing? With what instrumentation and how many and all of these sorts of things. And when we get knotted up about that sort of thing, we really are failing to live in the spirit of Paul here. And really, secondly then, a lot of our unhappiness and a lot of our discontent comes from having to have things go our way and not being able to be flexible. But if you're going to follow the Spirit, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if you're going to follow the Spirit, flexibility is an absolute requirement. You with me? Because my little box, he just blows that thing to smithereens. Jonathan Edwards defined love this way. He said, it's putting your happiness in the happiness of someone else. Man, that's so helpful. And I really think that's what Paul's describing. It's a hard attitude that says, you know, I don't really like things this way, but somebody else does. And I'm going to enjoy their enjoyment. I'm going to get my happiness from, from, my happiness from their happiness because it's not about me. I mean, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how many movies over the last 10 years of my life I've not wanted to go see, but my kids have wanted to go see. And I've gone and seen them, and it's been great. Why? Because they're having such fun. Laughing at fart jokes and stuff like that in a Disney movie. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking this is dumb. But they think it's great. And I love them. And because, and because it's great for them, I'm having a blast. There was a movie we saw recently. If I had gone to it by myself, I would have absolutely hated it. But they had such a great time. I had a great time. Why? Happiness is putting your enjoyment of something in someone else's. I mean, and, I, and really, I'm trying to model that because it's the lesson I really want my kids to learn. I mean, a lot of work of parenting for us goes into this, with four kids particularly, because, listen, there is no happiness. There is no flourishing if you can't learn how to do that. I mean, Christmas morning is way better, way more fun as a parent than it was as a kid. Isn't it? The kids are like, no way, that's dumb, that's stupid. No, just hang in there. <laughs> hang in there, it really is. Those without kids are like, I don't believe you. You'll get there one day, Lord willing. It really is. There's so much more joy in working for the joy of those you love. And here's what we're fighting for. Selfishness will kill a marriage. It will kill a church. The nibbling of complaining and critique can devour a church. And I'm just saying, let's love instead, like Paul does here, to put ourselves towards one another the way Paul does here. But secondly, then, if we're going to do that, then what's the threat? What do we have to overcome? And I'm going to use a specific word, and here I'm going to kind of come away from the text for a minute, and we'll get back to it in just a second, but I just want to make some comments here. I'm going to use the word consumerism because I think it names what the opposite of, of what we see in Paul here really is. And consumerism, of course, contains the word consume. And so a consumer is a person focused on getting rather than giving. And it really has become, it's become a worldview in our culture. It's a worldview that accepts uh, that the fulfillment of personal desires is the, happiness, is the highest good. That what life really is about that how you know you made it, the way you know things are really working in your life is if you figured out a way to get everything you want. That's what makes for a good life. Consumerism. So I have a consumer relationship with McDonald's. And uh, the basis of the relationship is the French fries, to be honest with you. It's the, re the reason I'm there. 
Uh, and if at any point I become unsatisfied with the service or the product, then I end the relationship, right? And truth be told, I was thinking about this, I really don't have a relationship with McDonald's any longer because we have Chick-fil-A in town now. Uh, and the only thing that was keeping me going back to McDonald's is that the Coke at Chick-fil-A is not as good as the Coke at McDonald's. Can I get an amen? Anybody with me? But here's the thing. But now every McDonald's except one in town, and I'll keep you guessing which one it is, they've all gone to those stupid machines with all the choices that, that don't have good Coke either. And so now me and McDonald's, we're over. We're done. I'm through with them. <laughs> it's the truth. I mean, it's the truth. I don't ever go there, ever. So now I have this relationship, this consumer relationship with Chick-fil-A, and it's the Chick-fil-A sauce, to be honest with you. And if they ever, yeah, thank you. If they ever, if they ever discontinue the sauce, I don't know. I mean, you know, that might be it for them, too. Uh, crispers change their salad dressing on the salad I like, and I haven't eaten there in three months. I'm serious, and I told them, that was dumb. <laughs> don't, things are going good. Don't change them. Although I'm talking about we need to change, so who knows? Okay, so <laughs> the point is, the point is, I go, I go to McDonald's, I go to Chick-fil-A, I go to Crispers to get what I want, and it's their pleasure to give me what I want <laughs> because that's how it works. That's how it works. But here's the problem. Consumerism is so pervasive that it's now beginning to uh, filter its way into every area of our lives. It even characterizes the way we relate to one another now. And so today, we stay connected to people only as long as they're meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. But when we cease to make a profit, uh, when the relationship appears to require from us more than we're getting back, then that's the end of the relationship. So the idea of covenant in marriage and in friendship and in belonging to a church even is disappearing from our culture. It's a real problem. And so a couple questions for you, to ask, for you to ask yourself as you just kind of think through this in your own heart. How do you think of yourself? Let me ask it that way. How do you think of yourself? Do you primarily think of yourself as a person with emotional and spiritual needs that, that need to be met? Or do you see yourself as a person full of capacities and gifts uh, that are meant to be given to God and to others? Whether you're a Christian or not, if you're, if you're a human, the Bible says that you've, you've been made in the image of God. And to be made in the image of God, one of the things that means is you've been made to create, not to consume. But if you're a Christian, then not only do you have that, but the Bible says you have the Spirit of God living in you. And what the Spirit does when he comes is he adorns you with gifts, with talents and strengths and capacities to be used to serve others. So for you to be in a place of flourishing, the only way for you to be in a place of flourishing is to be living your life in a way that is commensurate with the way that you've been made, in the way that you've been remade. And so there's just no happiness at the end of a life of thinking of yourself only as someone who has spiritual and emotional needs, and it's everybody else's job to make sure you're taken care of in all the ways that you think you need to be. The only way to flourishing is to know that made in the image of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, what is most true of you is you are a person who has incredible strength and gifts and capacities that are meant to be poured out for the glory of God and the good of other people. And to be busy using those things. How do you think of yourself? Well, how do you make decisions? Is it on the basis of whether you're happy or not? I mean, you understand. You understand, right? Now, that is true for most of us, but you understand that's just not the way life works. There's six people in my family. There are really seven people in my family, but 
Uh, three of those are teenagers. Now, let me just ask you, what percentage of the time do you think everyone in my house is happy all at the same time? Any guess? Yeah, probably zero. Listen, we are over for the last decade in finding a restaurant to eat at after church on Sundays that everyone is happy with. It's our least favorite, it's actually, I've said, it's our least favorite 30 minutes of the week. I don't want to go there. Where do you want to go? Oh, okay, great. I don't want to go there. I mean, you know, somebody wants a cheeseburger, somebody wants chicken fingers, and there's only certain places that, anyway, you know, you just, you can't make decisions that way. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't make decisions in marriage on the basis of your happiness. Marriage doesn't work that way. You can't be a family of six and expect you're always going to be happy. If it doesn't work with, you know, and which is why I'm grateful my kids have as many brothers and sisters as they do. Because maybe, maybe, we, we question it sometimes, they will really be fully functioning adults when they grow up, right? Because they'll have figured out, you got to work with people. What do you, you got you to gotta become a person at some point who can say, you know what, I'm not excited about where we're going to lunch, but you're obviously really excited about going there. You know what, that makes me happy. That's like revival, like Holy Spirit, like, <laughs> right? Came down in the car, if one of my kids would say that. I'm not picking on you guys. I'm not picking on you. It's true of every single, right? Amen. Everybody in the room. We're all there. It's just, but you can't do life that way. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It works 0% of the time in a family of six people. Do you think it would ever work in a group of people the size of our church? 500 people or so running around here? No way. Consumerism is religion in America. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised to find that our religion has become consumeristic, that God, like everything else, listen, God, like everything else, has become a commodity in America, that he has no value apart from what he can do for me. And that is idolatry. And, it has, and, and, and everything downstream from that poison spring gets ruined. And for one thing, it, it explains our tendency towards syncretism, you pick and choose the parts of the different religions you like, and Christians aren't immune. I just want you to realize. I had a friend years ago who was in a second marriage, and they were having a hard time uh, agreeing on a church to go to. So their counselor, who obviously had never been a pastor, told them that here's what they should do. They should make a list of everything that was important to them in looking for a church, doctrinal preaching, good worship. You know, uh, The congregation was friendly and welcoming. There was a vibrant student ministry, stuff for kids. Missions was a priority. So basically the perfect church. So they started visiting churches, and then they would go to lunch and rate the church in the different categories, and it was a disaster. They did it for a year or so, and they never found a church that was good enough in all the categories. Or uh, one of them would really like the preaching, but the other one wouldn't, so they'd cross it off the list, and they never found a church. And before long, they ended up divorcing. Uh, And so in the end, I guess they couldn't avoid approaching their marriage the way they approached finding a church. We don't need, listen, we don't need a church that caters to our every desire. We need a church that shapes our desires. Because our out-of-control desires are what's killing us. Commodification is the reason we have divorce and pornography and abortion and human trafficking. We need to learn a new anti-consumer approach to life. What we see from Paul here in 1 Corinthians 9 
And the core values of consumerism are incongruent with the Christian life. We are not most truly people with spiritual and physical needs to be met. We are people full of capacities and gifts to be given to God and to others. And the satisfaction of our desires is not the ultimate goal of life. The church does not exist to supply spiritual goods and services to religious consumers. God is not a commodity that exists to make you feel better. I made myself a servant to all, Paul said, verse 19, and that is the place of contentment and happiness. And so what Paul does here that I just want to draw your attention to, and we need to, I'm, I'm going too slow. We need to get, we need to get going here. Uh, I want you to see up in verse 7, what Paul does is he, he gives us three metaphors to help us reimagine uh, what, what the experience in the Christian community should be for us. And I just want you to see them, and I'm just going to say them and let you kind of wrestle with them later on your own. But I want you to see, he says, Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? And who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? And so there are three things there, right? If you're a Christian, you're not a consumer. You're a soldier. Life is war. Our church is not a sitcom or a soap opera. We are a gospel company. Uh, Our community groups are gospel platoons. And there's a real enemy that we've been called to fight. And your job is to fight for the person next to you. If you're a Christian, you're not a consumer. You're a farmer. The church is God's field, and your job is to use your gifts and your talents to cultivate the ground and make it fruitful. The church is the place where you sow, and the farmer waters and weeds and fusses over the crops, and we're to water and weed and fuss over one another like that too. And and then thirdly, if you're a Christian, you're not a consumer. You're a shepherd. Not just me. Not just me. The church is God's flock, and so your job, not just my job, is to care for and protect the people in this place. And so what you ought to do is take those words, just meditate on that for a little while today. What does that mean? What are the implications of Paul saying, if you're part of the Christian community, you're a soldier, you're a farmer, you're a shepherd. You're not a consumer. And here's a couple of things that I mean, I think it means before we get to the very, very end that we have to deal with here. And on the one thing, it means that you have no choice. If you're here, get involved, be active. Don't wait on somebody to give you a job. That's a form of religious consumerism too, right? Granted, it's a better looking version. I, you know, all, all the time I come across people, well, I want to serve. I'm, I'm going to find a church where I, I can serve. I have these gifts and I can only be a part of a church where my gifts are being used. But like almost every volunteer organization that I know, we have a shortage of workers. Don't wait to be asked. Don't wait to be asked. Where do you find yourself most frustrated by Redeemer? Isn't that a great, where do you find yourself most frustrated by our church? Here's what I would love for you to do. I would love for you to begin to assume that you feel that way because God has given you a vision of how to make us better. And that you are probably the one to do something about it. Don't complain. Fix it. Help. I'm a drowning man crying out. Help. Just like every leader of every nonprofit organization in the country is. I often hear people say, well, the church didn't do this or do that. And I, you know, I'm left wondering, well, who did, what do they mean by the word? I think when people say, well, the church didn't do, they mean you didn't do. Or, well, you know, our staff didn't do. I'm not sure. What is the church? It is good news for me to say the church is not me. Amen. You with me? Please say you believe that. If not, I need to go write a letter of resignation right now. It's not me. It's not our pastors. It's not the staff. We are the church together. And it's, and it's not even my job to find you a field to work in. It's my job to train you 
and sharpen the tools that you have to work it. And really, honestly, another application, the place where religious consumerism really shows up, and this is the part I'm really nervous about, but just bear with me when I say this, and I won't be here long. I think one of the places where it really shows in the church is the expectations that churches have for their paid staff people. But in Ephesians 4, Paul says the church builds itself up in love. So we are absolutely committed to that. You need to know that, that the goal of pastoral ministry is to become unnecessary. Good leaders in organizations become unnecessary to the organization because they've raised up so many other leaders that the organization can exist without them. My job is to raise up people, raise up an army of people to shepherd and, and, and defend and love the flock. And so be patient with us as we try to do that. And when I disappoint you, no. Jonathan, I'm just going, going around. Just, can I just put you on notice? I'm going to disappoint you. Please don't leave when I do. That hurts. Don't leave when I do. Just know that's going to be part of what our experience is and know that we're going to do everything we can to make sure that people are cared for here, even though a good, by the way, a selfish strategy would be for me and Jonathan to try to take care of everybody. We do an awful job of that. There's too many of you. We need other people to do it too, right? See what I'm saying? I'm a drowning man crying help. You're a soldier, you're a farmer, you're a shepherd. But then lastly, I need to finish. Then uh, we're talking about this missionary heart, about a person who shows up. And here's, what I, here's really what I'm saying, that wherever this person goes, they, they don't say, you know, I'm here. I'm here. What do I get? Instead, they show up. They say, I'm here. Where can I love? Who needs loved? So where's the spiritual power come from to give you a heart like that? And it's interesting. Paul is not motivated by the stuff we're usually motivated by. Look there in verse 19 again. He says, Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. And it really, it really is a remarkable statement. And really, the first part of the statement is really important. Paul's not motivated by the expectations or demands that other people might put on him. He's completely free from all fear of man or people-pleasing. He's not doing this because he needs people to approve of him or because he needs to be a success. Neither is he motivated by scruples. He's not bound up with rule-keeping. There's absolutely no have-to. There's absolutely no have-to in his life anymore. Man, can you imagine that? There, there's a little phrase you might miss. He says uh, in verse 20, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. There's no more law for Paul. There's no more have to. There's no more external pressure coercing his behavior. He is completely internally motivated, which is why he's so flexible. He's completely free. He can have a drink at dinner or he cannot have a drink at dinner. Whatever love calls for in the situation, there are no rules he has to follow. He's, he's completely immune from political correctness. So I don't have to do the things I'm doing, Paul says. I'm free. But I, but I want to. I'm internally compelled to serve others. And the second part is actually really, really dangerous without the first. If you never say no, it means that you're not healthy. You don't have appropriate boundaries. You're not free. So unless you can say the first part, the second part is actually not love. If you're serving people out of emotional neediness, you're not doing it for them. You're doing it to meet your own needs. We know this. Paul is not an empty trying to get filled with other people's praise. He is already full, and his fullness is overflowing in a life of service to other people. Which is why, before that, that, that passage I read in, first, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition, before Paul calls the church to that absolute de-selfing and the cherishing of other people, he reminds them, he, he starts with, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if you have any comfort in his love, if, if there's any power in the spirit for you, he's going through all of the things that are true of us. He's saying, if you, if you know Jesus, then your heart should be full of courage because of his love for you.
great comfort in the way he cares for you. He's given your, you his spirit to empower you. you. know, out of all of that, be overflowing with joy, he says there in Philippians 2. Be, be the cause of unity and encouragement wherever you go. I was reading uh, Lord of the Rings that says of Gandalf, wherever he went, wherever he went, men's spirits were lifted. Right? Be overflowing so that you get just excited about the stuff that's not, quote unquote, your thing because maybe it's somebody else's things. Be overflowing so that you're, you're free from a compulsive need to be made much of. And so that you become a person. I, after Paul does all that beautiful gospel work in, in Philippians 2, it's amazing to me that his application of the kind of life of living after the pattern of Jesus, who was God and became nothing, he said, the, the, the application of that down in verse 15 uh, is another verse that I pray for myself and for my kids a lot. He says, you know what? This should make you the kind of person who does all things without grumbling or complaining. How do you get a heart like that? How did Paul get like that? What's he motivated by? Well, let me just finish with this. At the end of the passage, he says, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And let me just mention, in the gospel, Paul had an experience of being loved by God in such a way that it filled up all his inner emptiness and need. In the gospel, Paul saw Jesus becoming, Jesus becoming. He saw Jesus laying aside his glory and becoming nothing to love him. He saw his humility and his obedience to the point of death on the cross. He saw Jesus' sacrifice of himself for his sins. He saw Jesus living his whole life not doing his own will but loving, and it overwhelmed him. It just absolutely overwhelmed him. And I just want to ask, what about you? Do you know his love? If you do, it's like roundup for your selfishness and your consumerism. It kills it off. And then for Paul, out of a place of being loved like that, he lived according to what he called, verse 21, the law of Christ. That Paul no longer lived under the law, but that doesn't mean he was free to do whatever he wanted to. There was the law of Christ, and there, there's the shape to the gospel. You see it in Philippians 2, that though he was God, he became nothing, becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. And if your faith is in Jesus, and if you're united to him, and, and that means that your life's going to take the same shape, that you will become a person who is laying aside your rights and letting go of your preferences and your opinions to serve others, because that's how the gospel goes forward. Think about it. Life for you came through Jesus' sacrifice. So in marriage and in friendship and even in the church, the way of gospel advance is through people who, like the one who died for them, die so that others might live. I'm free, Paul says, but I willingly, I joyfully make myself a slave to all. Do you see verse 19? To win them. How do you win people? He says, I do all of this so that the, I can see the gospel come alive in them too. Because the way the gospel goes forward in somebody else is in your dying for them the way Jesus has died for you. A consumer is a person who says, you die for me so that I can have what I need. A Christian is a person who says, I die for you so that you can have what you need. The two don't go side by side. Let's be a missionary people with that kind of gospel heart. Amen? Let's pray. Can we pray? So, Father, as we sing, lift our voices in grateful adoration and praise to you for the great work that you've done for us in the gospel. Help us to be a people cherishing you and your sacrificial love, Lord Jesus, and kindness to us.
in the great love that you've shown to us in coming all the way from heaven to earth to suffer and die in our place for our sins. What a glorious gospel. What good news it is. And so fill our hearts with that glorious good news until we are overflowing in gospel love and kindness to others. Having no thought for ourselves the way you had no thought for yourself, but being absorbed in the needs and and the wants, the hopes and the stories of others to lose ourselves, knowing that we have no need to worry about our needs being taken care of. You have provided our everything. Your love is so complete, we do not need any other love. And so would you do just that? Humble us out of our prideful grumbling and complaining, out of our insistence that people get with the program and and do it our way. Oh, Father, forgive us for the ways that we do that. Forgive me for the way I do that. And just cause our hearts to erupt with gratitude and joy and thanksgiving to you. And may the result be uh, this song that we'll, we'll sing now. So that as we sing it, it may come up to you and be sweet-smelling aroma, something that pleases you. Uh, even, if, even, if, uh, even as we pray, Lord, uh, we believe. But help our, help our unbelief. As we sing, help our hearts towards belief. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So hear these words. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. I lost my place. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrected and exalted one sends you out. He sends you out. Uh, to go and live a life that's similar to the life that he lived. But his resurrection and his exaltation is the promise that whatever, whatever death you might die for his sake, he will give life to your mortal body and multiply you into the lives of others in ways that will be beautiful for all eternity. He sends you with the promise of his presence, the promise of his power and of his spirit. So receive these words of benediction and go uh, to love others and to live for him the way he has loved you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.